In one of his uh, books, R.A. Torrey uh, tells of receiving a note from a man that was bitter uh, because he was praying on a regular basis and God just wasn't answering his prayers in his view. This is what the note said. I've been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I've been, been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years, have tried to be a consistent one all the time. I've been superintendent of Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt as though uh, you have tried to be a follower of Christ? You've been consistent in prayer, but God is just not answering your prayer. I think most people have felt that at some time. I want us to see if this passage can be of any help in terms of dealing with that issue, and especially if, like this man, it has led toward a bitterness or even a disappointment with God. We're going to pick up with the the 12th verse in John chapter 14, which as you remember in previous weeks, this is the passage where he begins by speaking to his disciples who had uh, troubled hearts because of what he had just told them about going away, because of what he had told them about one uh, betraying him, because of what he had said to, to Peter that he would deny him. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. So we pick up with verse 12. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Let's bow together.
Lord, will you in these so few moments, will you use your word? You have spoken, and now we ask you to speak again to us by that, that spirit that we have just read about, the spirit of truth. But we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So Jesus is still giving reasons why their hearts don't need to be troubled. We're going to hit a few more of these, uh, and then we're going to proceed to the Lord's table today. He says in verse 12 that uh, there are greater works that are coming. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now there are, I have uh, come across during my ministry, some uh, churches that uh, name their church Greater Works. Most churches, I, I can't speak for all of them, but most that would name their church that are going to have a, a big emphasis on miracles, healing, maybe, maybe uh, speaking in tongues, and other things those gifts that are sometimes called the charismatic gifts. And they base it upon this, that the, the works that he said you disciples are going to be doing is going to be even greater. Now, let's, let's figure out really what this is saying. And by the way, I don't object certainly to, uh, to that name. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it uh, right from uh, the Scripture but let's talk about what he cannot be saying here when he talks about uh, um, the, the, their greater works than those that I have done. Jesus isn't saying, is not saying that the disciples or the church would do more amazing miracles than him or in, in some way outperform Jesus. In fact, if you look at the miracles in, in the book of Acts, the early church, right after he said this, while the disciples, many of them were, were still there, they weren't greater than him. There were some amazing miracles. Any miracle is going to be amazing. But if you compare them to what, what Jesus did, they were not more spectacular than the works of Jesus. Nothing compares or could ever compare to him walking out of the tomb. So he wasn't saying, you disciples are going to do something even more amazing than that. So what is he saying? How do we understand this? Well, Calvin said on this verse, the reason why the disciples will do greater things than Christ 
is that when he has entered into the possession of his kingdom, he will demonstrate his power more fully from heaven. So here's, here's what I want you to think in terms of that word greater. Think of our great hall. Now, when, uh, uh, if, if you weren't here when we dedicated that, when we built it and dedicated it, uh, I explained where, where that name came from. Well, it, it comes from over in Scotland where they, you know, which would be the heritage of uh, good Presbyterians. And in the, in the castles, you would have a, a big room where uh, wonderful fellowship, where wonderful dinners, uh, uh, wonderful things went on, and they would often call it the Great Hall, which means the big hall. That's basically what it means. It's not something ostentatious. It just means the big place. And so uh, we decided to call it that. So think of, think of these works in that way. Here's what he is talking about. What he's saying is, not that there's going to be more fantastic miracles. What he's saying is that the message that he has given is going to be multiplied. It's going to be bigger, uh, greater out there than it is even while he was there. The more his words would be shared, greater is the work done by the Father. Now think about it. Why? Why would that be the case? Well, in his earthly ministry, Jesus was in one place. So if you were going to hear Jesus, you had to be there. And so you were either in a small group or a bigger group or at the most several thousand people hearing the message all at once, trying to crowd in to be able to hear it. But after he left, his message would multiply because of what we'll see, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So think about it right now, what's going on. In the last few hours, in the next few hours, all over the world, the word is being spoken from pulpits all over the place. Even think about our church uh, during the Sunday school hour, 15 or more teachers speaking his word in this one place. And that's just one church. You multiply that by all of Columbia, South Carolina, United States, the world. That's the multiplication of the message that would be out there. And then Jesus gives them another reason in addition to that, that the message would be multiplied and even greater in that way, more, more widespread in verse 13 and 14, another reason their hearts don't need to be troubled, he says, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now again, here's one of those verses that... Uh, can easily be misunderstood and is often misused 
and misapplied. Let me, let me explain. Some will build a theology of prayer on this verse and take, for instance, over in Matthew 18, verse 19, where uh, Jesus said, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, you take those at face value, you can see how a theology uh, could be built, that these are promises, and that if you have enough faith, you can ask anything. Sure seems to say that. That's sometimes called the, the name it, claim it theology. You name something, you claim it in Jesus' name, or claim it with someone else. Some call it word of faith or speak it faith or positive confession. There's a lot of, lot of names for that. And in that theology, it's often applied to healing, for instance. Now, let me say right up front, I, I believe God heals. I don't have any question about that. God heals. He can do it whenever he wants, wherever he wants. There is no boundary on him in terms of healing. But this is uh, uh, sometimes used, let me, let me give you some uh, direct quotes in terms of healing or financial issues or relationship issues. And, and I have the names of the ones who said this, but I'm not going to tell them to you because I don't want to make them more famous. And you can, you can find them on TBN or uh, on a lot of different channels really, really late at night or really, really early in the morning. So uh, that's where you will often hear some of this theology. Speaking of this verse, one of those preachers said, believe it in your heart, say it with your mouth. That's the principle of faith. You can have what you say. Another one said, being poor is a sin when God promises prosperity. Some of you are thinking, wow, what a sinner I am, I know. <laughs> being poor is a sin when God promises prosperity. My God is rich, he says, and he's trying to show you how to draw out of your heavenly account uh, that Jesus bought and paid for and purchased for you at Calvary New house, new car, that's chicken feed. That's nothing compared to what God wants to do for you. Sound good? Let's take healing, for instance. If you interpret uh, these verses with the name, the way the name it and claim it, preachers do, I would have to ask this question. Why does anyone who believes this and holds to this, why do they ever get sick? Why do they ever die? Why do any of their relatives ever get sick or die? And let's go further. 
why is there still cancer? Are you going to tell me that they couldn't find two people to agree on that? That there should be no cancer ever again? Do you see how this, this cannot uh, uh, be teaching that? So what's it mean? We need to look at all biblical teaching on that subject and not simply pick out a couple of verses. In fact, to help us understand, let me read you a verse that you will not hear from those preachers. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So, here's the problem. How do they get out of that? Well, typically... What they will say is when, when you, you, you have agreed on something, you have stood before God in faith and you have prayed and you or someone else didn't get healed or didn't get the new house, they will turn it around and say, you must not have had enough faith. And what that does is it just piles the guilt or fear on someone who is already grieving. And they believe that gets them off the hook. But the scripture says it, it must be according to his will. So, so to put those together, to ask in Jesus' name is to ask according to his will. How do we do that? Where do we find God's will? In his word. You heard that taught earlier uh, today even. Here's what we can know. If we pray the scripture appropriately, we will be praying according to his will. If you pray it in its right context and appropriately. And understand this as well. Praying in Jesus' name is not just an incantation. In other words, tacking it onto a prayer at the end is not what he's talking about when he says to pray in Jesus' name. That's not a magical incantation that makes everything you've just said okay. So, what does it mean? Brian Chappell um, wrote a whole book called Praying Backwards. And the whole book is about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So here I'm going to try to tell you in two minutes. It's a big subject. But one of the interesting things he suggested was if we were to literally pray backwards, it would help us discern if we're asking childishly. Um, here's an example. In Jesus' name, give me a new car. In Jesus' name, lower my taxes. In Jesus' name, 
make my stock go up in value. In Jesus' name, get me out of this marriage. In Jesus' name, make my church real big. Do you see? If you, if you really are doing it in Jesus' name with a focus on his glory, how trivial those things all of a sudden begin to sound. And while there might be God-honoring purposes in some of those, here's what Chapel says, but the glory of Jesus' name is not the primary focus of most of them. When we become the primary focus of our prayer, and our earthly satisfaction is our greatest concern, then ending our prayer with Jesus' name is superfluous at best and possibly little more than superstition. In other words, trying to fix an unbiblical prayer by saying, in Jesus' name. So here's the difference between a, a, a child's wants and a mature person, or a childish prayer, and the more mature. A child wants God to give them what they want. The mature ask God to conform, conform me to what you want. Children say, my will be done. The mature Thy will be done. You get the idea. Now back to R.A. Torrey, the, the introduction that I, I read to you. This was his response to that man that was bitter. He said, the man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He's really praying in his own name, and God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims on God. There's not one of us who deserves anything from God. If we got what we deserved, every one of us would spend eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God, and we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, in other words, not because I'm a church member in all this, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. That's what it is to pray in Jesus' name. And then he goes on and talks about uh, love and action. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's different ways of reading this, and we'll actually get more into this in, in uh, future weeks. Uh, some say it's if you, if you love me, then you're obligated to keep my commandments. In other words, love is shown by your obedience. I think more likely it's if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you're really, really in Christ, it's, it's always, um, it will always result in a response of obedience. That was the reformer's view. First, we come to Christ by, by faith, 
and obedience will always follow. That's the idea here. And then he begins to introduce the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at even more in, in next week and the week after. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this version translates that helper. Some, some versions, you may have one that translates it advocate or comforter or counselor. Uh, the Greek word, and um, we usually don't say Greek words from here, but it, it makes it, I think, easier to understand. It's paraclete, para meaning alongside of, and clete is uh, to call. So the idea to, to call alongside, someone you've called alongside of you to help you in your defense. So does the, the Holy Spirit counsel? Absolutely. Does the Holy Spirit comfort? Absolutely. But the stronger way to look at it, as one commentator put it, it was the one who came to give you strength for the battle. More like an advocate, a counselor in a courtroom, someone who could defend your case during a trial. So that's the Holy Spirit to come and empower us. And then notice it, it, it doesn't just say, I'll send you a helper. It says, another helper. So for there to be another paraclete, that tells you that there was a first paraclete. Who was the first paraclete? It was Christ. In 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, he has an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the picture is Jesus before the Father defending us. That's Jesus, and he sends us another one. We see that in, in the next chapters that Jesus will, will go away when he ascends into heaven. He'll be stationed at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying for his people. But not only that, here's what else we see about the Holy Spirit from this verse. He's the spirit of truth. Secondly, He's not available to those outside of Christ. Look, if you're here and, uh, today out and, and you don't know Christ yet, I'm so glad you're here. I want you, to, I want you to hear these things, but I don't want you to think that without Christ, that the Holy Spirit, you have access to him. We have access to the Holy Spirit because of the first helper, because of Christ himself and trusting in him alone for eternal life. When one receives Christ as Savior, the Spirit immediately takes up residence. And so when we say Christ is in our heart, 
It literally means the Spirit of Christ. It literally means that the Holy Spirit is inside of us. So these are all things that are still explaining why our hearts don't need to be troubled. So before us at the table is the glorious picture of the great benefit you receive if you are trusting in Christ alone for eternal life. Our advocate who went to the cross for us, who shed his blood, who gave his body, and it's represented here. And he is praying for us and representing us to the Father. And that's what we celebrate here. But even as we do, we know that he has given us another advocate who dwells with us and in us. And that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would please for your people, for your children, give a very real sense of the presence of your spirit who is our advocate, comforter, counselor, who stands for us in the battle, who empowers us. And even as we take of this supper, will you strengthen us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.